0: Of the Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense that was fully networked by ITV was Tattoo, aka Mark of the Devil. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, no one else ever seems to, is podcaster Al Kennedy. Al, what are you up to where can we find it?
1: I do a comics podcast it's probably the thing I'm best known for a show called House to Astonish which has been running since 2008 which you can find over at housetoastonish.com where we talk about comics news and reviews and some general kind of mucking around as well and I've also just in the last couple of months started a second podcast called Desert Island Discworld which is a interview podcast about the, uh, the works of Terry Pratchett and the people who read them and that's. Over at desertislanddiscworld.com, and uh, you can also get me on Twitter um, where I'm at House to so Astonish. Right, well, weirdly tying all of that
0: introduction together without me meaning it to is your <laughs> first choice, which, as well as featuring sci fi and sword and sorcery, was fully networked by ITV. <laughs> Alias
1: the jester was a time traveler. Like your bad luck, the ship got stuck in the Earth's magnetic hole From the middle of space to the Middle Ages Alias the Jester Alias the Jester The Jester in disguise Watch him change before your very eyes the jester meets its fate again
0: got the name of the series from that, even if you didn't know what it was. But Al, what was Alias the Jester?
1: In the 1980s, Cosgrove Hall had a few massive hits, because everybody remembers Danger Mouse, everyone remembers Ducula, Jolson and the Wheelies, all those sorts of big ones. But they did have, over the years, some smaller shows that didn't quite take off the way that uh, things like Danger Mouse did. And what alias suggested was one of those. I remembered it because I had, as a kid, a variety of videos from a thing called The Video Collection, which was, I think it was mostly kids... Cartoons and some kind of movies like, you know, flying down to Rio and stuff like that as well. But one of the ones that they had was a video of half a dozen episodes of this thing, Alias the Jester. Now I've never saw Alias the Jester actually on television. Apparently it, it was about sort of eighty five. It was on TV, and the, the video that I have, I've looked up. Apparently, came out in eighty six. So I never actually saw it live. But the video that I had had half a dozen episodes of this thing on, and it was. Weird, because it was very clearly a Cosgrove Hall show, because, you know, it had Brian Truman, who did tons of stuff for Cosgrove Hall, you know, he was Nanny and Ducula and, and all kinds of things, is one of the voices in this. It's got Richard Bryers as the lead character, who is this alien called Alias, who comes to Earth by accident um, in the Middle Ages and becomes a court jester, hence Alias the Jester. It's just this weird, surreal, like a lot of their stuff from around that time, very influenced by British telecomedy. So there's heavier influence of, of Monty Python And there's heavy influence of the goodies in there as well And every episode just sees him and his dog Who's an alien dog who speaks with the voice of a kazoo And um, his pal who's basically Merlin But it's called Meredith Who's voiced by Brian Wilde Is basically just medieval Mr. Barracliffe And they get into scrapes and adventures And he's basically a superhero And he's he's dressed as a jester for most of the time, and then he can sort of, you know, do this little um, Bewitched-style nose twitch and turn into this superhero-looking character who basically was the Flash. He had the red suit and the little hat wings and everything
0: yeah i remember when it went out but for quite strange roundabout reasons i mean i actually liked it for the very reason you state was it was very unusual for that sort of cartoon it was on children's itv i think very late in 1985 Mm -hmm. and they only ran for the one series 13 episodes and like you say it was a rare misfire for cosgrove hall because they had you know they had the really big things like danger house and so on they had these smaller scale things for younger children like children and the wheelies and Jamie and the magic torch and even Sally and Jake and so on were quite well known but occasionally they did something like this. They just didn't catch on. And this was straight on the back of not just Danger Mouse, which was massive. I think this was meant to be the next Danger Mouse, and then that didn't work, so they did Count Duckula, But also, Wind in the Willows, which wasn't really yeah. to my taste, but that was multi-award winning. That had a feature-length Christmas special. That went on for a very long time. And they did this, and it just fell flat on its face. Apparently, it was produced in tandem with Creepy Crawlies, or to pronounce it properly, Creepy Crawlies, with Creepy <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know they did all these odd little shows that didn't work, but this really stuck in my mind because it was one of those things where everyone seemed to know what it was for a very short while, and it oddly tied in with there were two Spectrum games that. See, everything revolved around computer games at that <laughs> point in time. <laughs> that was your proper cultural touchstone, and there were two games that came out of roughly the same time as Alias to which kind of when they were combined, sort of made Alias to because there was. Nodes of Yesod, which was about a spaceman who somersaulted backwards in. I think it was in caves. I once had to email in to Radcliffe McConey to prove that somebody wasn't making up Nodes of Yesod (laughs) because they thought it was such a strange name, it couldn't possibly have existed. And the other one was was Spellbound, which is one of the Magic Knight games, which is about a kind of magic medieval knight having similar adventures to Aliens the Jester. Mm. And to me, it just always sat between those two games. Which most people are probably thinking by now, what are you talking about? <laughs> but that's it. that was how it sort of orbited around my universe. And a couple of years later, people might not remember this now, but it was kind of crazy in the late 80s, when, before it was called Rave, when the Rave thing started happening, for very pastel-coloured, sort of baggy clothing and there was a guy in school who was a really big raver who started wearing a I'm not sure if it actually was velvet but it was a velvety material shell suit and it was sort of in quarters lilac and pale green I remember seeing him go alias the jester <laughs> and about two people laughed and I feel else was kind of what what was that yeah that was it it was just forgotten and like you say there was a lot of talent involved in it things were more disposable then i think if they didn't catch on that was it people just moved on
1: definitely i mean the thing about it as well is that it had this i don't know whether it was maybe slightly more of an acquired taste because like danger mouse had a very kind of uh, good kind of vibe to it to the extent that they would almost like straight up reference goodie stuff but also it was not as unpredictable i don't want to say unpredictable because danger all sorts of weird stuff happened in James, but like sitting watching episodes of alias the jester on youtube as i was this afternoon and just go well i would never have guessed you'd have got from there to there by the end of the episode the amount of things that turned up in it like one episode i watched it was vikings on a flying longboat the longboat flies for no explained reason whatsoever they're all geordies And they decide that they they want to kidnap the princess, they accidentally kidnap the wizard, they decide that maybe they want to have the wizard turn some Brussels sprouts into gold and all this kind of thing. And it's just like, how did you get, you've only got nine minutes of animation to do per episode, like how did you get to the point where you're just like, right, we've got about 30 seconds worth of story where do we go from here? Let's draw ideas out of a hat. This is one of the other things I noticed about it as well. The episodes are 10 minutes long of which fully the first entire minute is the opening sequence. The opening credits are really long. It's like a full song and which is fine if you've got a 22 minute show or whatever but for a show that's only 10 minutes long you're using up a lot of real estate on that.
0: And it was also written by Keith Hopwood out of Herman's Hermits which is a great bit of trivia but yeah you are right it goes on forever and it explains it doesn't just explain the whole background to the story it does it twice
1: yeah it's like here's what alias suggested it and here's how he got stuck on earth and then it's like, okay, we're going to go into the, you have a little chorus bit. It's like, okay, that'll be the end of it. And he goes, and here's the kinds of things that Alias the Jester does. Did we mention that he rescues people and, you know, like, protects the vulnerable? And it's like, yeah, you, you did, actually. You did mention that before.
0: And also, a jester in disguise, watch him change before your very eyes. Now, even that's <laughs> kind of restating it. <laughs>
1: absolutely there was some definite redundancy in there I mean it was long enough that there's a key change at the end and everything
0: I always loved the in particular the episode titles not just the Danger Mouse which do get celebrated but the docular ones were fantastic I've never forgotten there was one called I ain't gonna work on maggots farm no more (laughs) <laughs> Without a single thought of the fact kids wouldn't get a Bob Dylan reference, they just thought that's funny. We'll build a story around that yeah. where he's I mean, working the, for a Maca that owns a farm. The
1: very first episode of Docula's episode title is a reference to "No Sex, Please." We're British.
0: Yes. I mean, what? <laughs> Okay, so we're not exactly moving that far mainly as to Jester's universe in the birds Commons for your second choice now I couldn't really find a clip to use for this so I'm just going to stick something here and we'll just go straight into it afterwards okay I thought for ages and ages and ages I could not think before recording what we were going to to use as a clip for Steve Jackson's Battle Cards. So, Al, oh, what were they?
1: I was a teenager at exactly the right time for Steve Jackson's Battle Cards, in that they came out in 93, I think it was, when I turned 13. And I was into, you know, Terry Pratchett, and I was into, you know, Dungeons & Dragons books and Dragonlance and all that kind of stuff. And I was massively, being a, a British kid in, into that sort of type of fantasy, massively into the fighting fantasy game book. You know, it was all the kind of you know, Warlock of Far Top Mountain kind of stuff, not so much the ones that were not in that universe, not so much the kind of the sci-fi ones or the one that, the, I can't remember what it was called, the weird sort of Mad Maxi one that they did. It was all the ones that were just really grim, grotty, manky fantasy books where it was, you're walking along a corridor, there's a door. Do you want to open the door? And it's okay, or no, I'm just gonna keep going. And you basically had about a 50-50 chance that if you opened the door, there would be a monster who, if you killed it, would give you an essential item that if you didn't have it later in the book, you were absolutely screwed. Or you would have a monster that if you killed it, there would be nothing in the room whatsoever apart from the monster. That was a very 1980s-inspired, like, it's a hard life out there, kids. Maggie Thatch is going to come and take away all your gold coins and your magic wishing rings. But in 93, Steve Jackson, one of the fine fantasy writers, he came up with this thing, Battle Cards. Battle Cards, were they were trading cards, basically. Like, the first real wave of... Trading cards as trading cards as collectible things had come a few years before with the Ninja Turtles trading cards that were everywhere for like the full summer. Battle cards was something that was like, well, what we'll do is we'll make trading cards, but they will also be a game. But they will be a game that means you can't collect the cards because they, they were like lottery scratch cards in that they had 25 little scratch off circles of silver on them and you know you'd A section for the whatever the creature or characters it was, its head and its uh, legs and its arms and so on. And it had little life boxes and it had a purse box as well. Because they all carried purses. It was very forward thinking. You would take turns with a friend to scratch off a hit space on one of their cards. And if you didn't get anything behind that space, then that was it. You was your turn over. If you did get a little red blood dot, then you got to have another go. And if you got a second red blood dot, which was a wound, I think they, they called it, you got to scratch off one of their, like, four or five life boxes. And if you got a red skull behind that, then it was dead. And you got to take the card and scratch off whatever was in its purse and see how much money it carried around, which is usually not very much. And if you didn't get that, then at any point, if you come up with nothing, then it goes over to the other person. And what that meant was you could only ever play one of these cards once. Ever. At which point it had already been grievously wounded. You know, there's no coming back from being a battle cards character. You get in one fight and you are either dead or you're sent off to the retirement home. You could either collect them or you could play the game. It wasn't just that they were one or the other thing. It was the fact that if you did want to play the game, then it was a very expensive habit to be in. Because they were really expensive. I think they were something like a pound for five or something like that. And back in, you know, 93, that was a lot of money for something that's going to last you for five minutes of a game with one of your mates. And they had such cool kind of evocative, that that whole grim, grotty, snotty world of fighting fantasy style art. You know, there was not a lot of elves with flowing robes going, ah, kind of stuff. It wasn't very Tolkien-esque. It was extremely just dank, and everything was just covered in filth, and it was a very British way of looking at fantasy stuff. Not that not that Tolkien's wasn't obviously, but it was a very kind of nineteen eighties British way of looking at things. Well, it's interesting you mentioned
0: lottery scratch cards because this was a couple of years before they were a thing, mm. and at that. Points, scratch cards, this has been completely forgotten about now, More associated with it, with the sort of thing where one of the wilder kids in school would somehow acquire from, I never knew quite whether it was newsagents or pubs, but you never knew how they got hold of them, or what their provenance was, you never saw them anywhere, but there were kind of, sort of like fruit machine scratch cards that you're supposed to be over 18 to buy, so technically it was gambling. To me, sort of scratch cards seemed like quite sleazy. I'd always Thought it was given respectability well after a fashion by the lottery scratch cards but I didn't know about this weird thing in between because by that stage I sort of left fighting fantasy behind but the thing I'm interested to find out is when all that was really big in the 80s it was quite regular that a kid would come into school you know a very different kind of kid coming into school would have say an issue of white dwarf or a lead figurine or whatever and a teacher would always invariably say as they tried to stuff it in their bag because the teacher came in to take the register they've been in the news those I don't want to see them again you know because there were <laughs> all the weird scare stories about a boy who'd hallucinated orcs after seeing the word Dungeons and Dragons or whatever was that still the situation by then? do people accept it a bit more
1: well I think there was still that whole kind of satanic panic thing going with d d even back then I remember Future Publishing had a magazine called Arcane for a while which had some really fantastic Writers working for it. it had people like Jonathan Nash, it had Anthony Johnson, who is the now a A comics writer and thriller writer was a graphic designer at Future at that point. He was working on arcane. And they did an issue quite early on in their run, I think it was about five issues in, where the cover story was about RPGs and Satanic Panic. Because it was still something that people would not really get behind at that point. It was still looked at as being a wee bit kind of a, is this child going to end up trying to cast a spell?
0: (laughs) is it a, a time on the thing about things that regardless of the actual moral rights amongst them when the whole generation or even the whole sway of society don't understand something they decide it's dangerous in a really weird way. I mean, it'll be no surprise to anyone listening that I'm quite fascinated by the whole video nasties phenomenon. But what's really weird is when you look back at the press coverage and the things that people like MPs say and so on, it's almost as though they couldn't quite be happy with the idea that these films might have a dangerous effect on people psychologically. It was they seem to think that somehow the films could get you from beyond the tape. Almost like they were a malevolent force. And one of my favourite things ever is I think it was from the Daily Mail, but a cutting with photos of two chief constables and the headline Save Us from Video Nasties. <laughs> I've never read it because I want it to be them saying, and I was walking home and evil speak, tripped me up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Driller killer put them up against the wall and took their lunch money. <laughs> yeah. Imagine
0: if that was the worst of his crimes. <laughs> Very different film.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that in the eighties and the nineties, particularly the eighties, driven by people like Patricia Pooling and so on, all the kind of bothered about Dungeons and Dragons and all those sorts of pressure groups. D and D got, in particular, it was D and D because it had this name value, and it was as if there was going to be some actual genuine magic done by children sitting trying to you know work out critical hit tables and things like that i don't think it's entirely likely that you know satan was sitting there going now should this be a A D12 or a D20 for this? (laughs) Hmm. What's the evilest die? The evilest die, of course, is the D4, because when you drop one on the floor and can't find it, you will find it the next morning when you sleepily come into the living room again. The
0: thing was, though, even throughout all that, there were moves to kind of not just sanitise it but make it suitable for children that way below the target audience because obviously there was the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon which I never liked I found it quite chewy but I'm aware a lot of people liked it but another thing that really has stuck in my mind was there was a Grange Hill summer special one year like a magazine it was really weird it had you know the cast giving their tips on the perfect holiday and so on they have photo stories where they would have like one actual cast member say like Robbie or somebody or Ziggy and all the other characters in it They acted as though they were regular Grange Hill pupils, but you'd never seen them before. And one had Roland as a quite experienced Dungeons and Dragons player, and two younger boys were playing it with him made fun of him, obviously, because he was fat and he was Roland, and he played a trick on them by making a kind of life size orc or something (laughs) (laughs) Which is completely at odds with anything he ever did in the programme as well. Isn't it strange (laughs) that there were those moves to I don't think it was even because it was a recognisable brand because it's something you had to actually understand to be able to present it as a brand.
1: Yeah, because I think they had I can't remember what, I think it might have been Sugar Puffs had a giveaway at one point which was all sorts of fantasy creatures and it was orcs and things like that. And I remember that was the first time I ever heard the word orc was on the, the advert for that. But it was definitely a thing that somebody at some point thought we can market this to children specifically, like not even to teenagers who are really the, kind of the natural audience for D&D and things like that, but like specifically we can market this to young kids. So that's quite fascinating, I think. I mean, not. I mean, battle cards would not have been something that young kids would have been able to really... I mean, if I'd been six or seven years old and trying to play with battle cards, I would have been distraught because somebody would have had to explain to me after 10 minutes that actually my, you know, several weeks of pocket money had already been whittled away down the drain <laughs> on, the, on these five sad minutes of getting beaten by whoever I'd managed to rope into playing with me. Well,
0: I did look up. Steve Jackson said he defied it, it, was called the Scratch and Slay system. which nice. If you've heard the edition with Chris Shaw, where we talked about Steve Jackson's phone-in-phone game, <laughs> which, is, which is called F-I-S-T. You know you mm-hmm. had a way with names, so mm-hmm. I love that it was called Scratch and Slay, but <laughs> apparently there were warrior cards, spell cards, advanced combat cards, but no combat cards, quest cards, and treasure cards.
1: Yeah, the treasure cards was an absolute racket. The treasure <laughs> cards was... You would scratch off an item on one side, like a name of an item, no idea what it was going to be, and you had a variety of different choices you could make, and then on the other side you would scratch off how much is they going to be asking for it, so it could be anything. You know, it could be, oh, it's a small potion, and it costs 200 gold, or it could be like, it's an incredible battle axe, and it cost you 10 pence, or whatever. What you needed to do with them was you needed to have collected enough actual physical cards that you had beaten of your mates, and got enough from the purses that you would literally send off the treasure card plus all the cards that you had beaten to get that amount of money and they would send you the item card back in the post It sounds
0: like a satanic I spy book
1: It was unbelievable like it was a proper kind of pyramid scheme almost like it was just ridiculous bit of odd barter
0: Okay well before we attract the attention of Steve Jackson's lawyers I think we better move on to your next choice which I've got very fond memories of this so here's the theme music and we'll talk about it in a minute It's a grand life, it's a grand life. It's a knife, got the world in my hand life. It's a fairy tale land life. There's never any reason to wonder very far. We're lucky to have landed where we are. It's a grand life, it's a grand life. It's an long Life, strike up the band it's a life. Okay, that's a tune that just comes back to me instantly whenever I think of this programme. I'll
1: Marblehead Manor? There was a period in time when Channel 4 used to show American import sitcoms at 6pm. And like the big ones that it showed that were the huge hits were things like Cosby Show, Different World and things like that. Later on, it was stuff like Hang with Mr. Cooper and so on. But one of the ones that they showed in that slot relatively early on was this thing, Marblehead Manor, which was a very short run show. I think it was like 86 to 87 it ran. It's basically the story of two guys who were childhood friends and they grow up to one of them is becomes like this incredibly rich guy who's got this mansion and everything. And the other one grows up to become his butler, because that's the kind of thing that happens in American sitcoms. The general conceit of it was that they were every single episode was going to feature the various members of the uh, the household, so you had a gardener and a cook and you had a chauffeur and you had, obviously, you had the butler. And you would like the Lord and Lady or whatever. And it was just going to be farces. And every episode was going to have this kind of roller coaster style. Let's build up, let's build up, let's build up. Let's put all the pieces out on the board. And then after about 10 minutes in, let's go down the other side of the roller coaster and this will be the farce for the rest of the 20 minutes. And the difficulty that it had was that farce is really hard to write and they did not hit it more than i would say i mean there only are what about are there 13 episodes or something like that there's barely any episodes of it i think they maybe got it right about twice every other time you can kind of see them really really trying hard to do it but it doesn't quite quite get there but we in my house never ever missed an episode. Like, I saw every episode of this the first time Channel 4 broadcast them because it was, like, our show. The family all decided we were going to watch this programme together because it was it was a US import that was clean. It was on at that time of night where we were sitting having our tea. And it was funny enough for me aged... 7 so I was extremely pleased to to go back in later life and find that it's actually got a bunch of people in it who I totally recognise from things he did much later
0: yeah because amongst others there's Michael Richards who obviously I suspect he was cast as Kramer in Seinfeld as a direct result of this his physical comedy is very much on display
1: yeah and he plays a quite similar sort of character he's quite sort of tripped out and not very bright
0: there's also Paxton Whitehead is Albert the butler who you alluded to before I didn't who he was at that point but he was the went Beyond the Fringe toured America he replaced Jonathan Miller who I think had stayed behind to present Monitor so later I was quite astonished to get hold of the American Beyond the Fringe LP and find that the man from Marblehead Manor was on it Mm. which I didn't expect at all and the other really weird one was Linda Thorson who plays the wife in it who obviously was Tara King in The Avengers now that wasn't long after Channel 4 repeated The Avengers which was an early obsession of mine That was quite interesting, though, because it was always odd around then to find people who were in shows that you loved, that you knew were really, really old, still doing things. It always took you by surprise for some reason. I mean, there were things like when Davy Jones presented the series The Puzzle Trail on the BBC while they were still repeating The Monkeys. That seemed quite weird. Hmm. Susan Dave and the Partridge Family turning up in L.A. Law, which, you know, the Partridge Family was barely 10 years old at that point, and it still felt like it was from another age.
1: Yeah, I mean, And I saw an episode of Law and Order SVU where it turned out that the crim what did it was Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So that was a bit (laughs) odd.
0: And yet, like you say, this was on Channel 4 at tea times. Weirdly, I have seemed to remember it being on much later, because they did show ones in very late slots as well, which I think were the weirder ones. I thought it went out later, but no, you're right, it was 6pm. And they yeah. showed, there were 24 apparently, they showed all 24.
1: I bet they showed more in the UK than they showed in the US.
0: Probably, that used to happen quite often. I mean, I believe it's only UK audiences that have ever seen all of Nearly Departed with Eric Idle. <laughs> I don't think even <laughs> Eric Idol's seen all of it, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Paxton Whitehead for me was somebody who in in later years like I'm a huge West Wing fan and oh, of course. Paxton Whitehead is like the he plays uh, what's he called Bernard or Bernard, as they insist on calling him, who's like the the head of diplomatic protocol or whatever, the guy who keeps all the nonsense that the president gets handed when he's on trips and so on. He, he's like a sort of posher Simon Jones in in a lot of things. Like he's just he's extremely kind of <laughs> kind of voice. He tends to play characters who are called things like he was Sir Reginald Harrington in something called Almost Home. He was in Dinosaur apparently the hens and (laughs) dinosaurs as someone called Sir David Tushingham.
0: Well, you see, all of this was riffing on, and I'm surprised it didn't take off for some reason. There's always been that thing in America that, for no apparent reason, they find anything sort of English toff style hilarious. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. that whole thing in Wayne's World that people have explained to me hundreds of times that I still don't quite understand, which is when he winds down the window and says, that man, have you any grey poop on? Apparently that's an American mustard advert where a very posh man in the car, says it to somebody, a very posh English bloke, and that's all that happens in it. And apparently it was like the favourite advert of America for years because they all had hysterics I second this bloke spoke. Right. <laughs> Which I don't really get, but you think that... I mean, maybe it was a bit too anarchic, but it is properly trying to do, like, a stage farce from the 60s, yeah. I think.
1: It was these kind of whoops, the vicars come round and I'm in the wardrobe and no trousers kind of farces. Like, it was that sort of stuff.
0: Did they like Terry and June in America <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's a lot of kind of, you know, someone goes out of one door just as somebody else is coming in the other. And it must have taken enormous amounts of choreography to do. I remember there was one in particular where... Somebody who I think is like the the butler's mum or something like that is coming to visit, and he has lied and said that he's actually the lord of the manor, and so he needs to rope everybody into. They all switch around who they are because they all come into the lie one at a time, and so they have to make up all this stuff essentially on the hoof very like that episode of Frasier where Daphne's brother comes to visit and they all have to pretend all sorts of things and and Martin pretends that he was an astronaut just because he thinks this is an appalling thing to do to Daphne's brother and he's damned if he's not going to try and screw it up (laughs) as best he possibly can. In particular the great line, one of my favourite lines from Frasier ever where Martin having claimed to be an astronaut is sitting there while uh, Daphne claims that she has married Niles and this was well before Niles ever confessed his, his love for Daphne and so on and so Daffy's brother, who's played by Anthony LaPaglia, doing the worst English accent yes. I've ever heard. Couldn't find you in the in the phone book under Crane. And She's like, no, it's uh, it's under Moon Crane. We hyphenate. And Martin says, I remember the first time I drove a Moon Crane. <laughs> Damn near drove it into the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> Well, it's
0: funny you should mention Frasier because there were two really interesting things I found out on Marblehead Manor that I didn't know before. One of which is, it was made by Paramount, but it was made for them by, apparently, now I don't remember how their idemp went and I wish I did, Dame's Frasier Productions. And I like to think it was just Kelsey Grammer with his arms around loads of women. (laughs) (laughs) The idemp for it. The other thing is, it was an attempt by NBC to take on Wheel of Fortune, which, you know, was one of the biggest game shows mm. ever. They stripped across the schedules this with Out of This World, which is interesting because most people associate that kind of with, although it was on at 10am on weekdays, they think of it as a kid's show, mm. which is one about Evie, the alien girl who could gleep and stop yes. time. And also, She's the Sheriff, which is one of the most
1: oh, wow, ridiculous that. Yeah.
0: excuses for a comedy programme ever. And it's just the fact that it was paired with both of those just seems to make no sense at all to me.
1: Yeah, she's the sheriff, one of those great kinds of, uh, you know, what's the what's the plot of she's the sheriff? Well, she's the sheriff. What, what, what's what's the what's the sitcom of it? Well, she's the sheriff. It's, it's very kind of, you know, how did you get in here? I'm a locksmith, and I'm a locksmith.
0: But I'm just sad there weren't any crossovers, and sad that Evie didn't turn up at Marblehead Manor. <laughs> <laughs> and sing Leave a Light On by Belinda Carlisle for no apparent reason, which she did in one episode. <laughs> okay, well, staying in weird American humor land for your next choice, I thought when you mentioned this, I didn't know what it was, But when I read up about it, I realised I've actually seen this. Now, let's hear a very unconventional musical number from this, and then you can tell us about it. You can talk.
1: Talk? We can sing! (gasps) Garbage! Garbage!
0: Garbage! Garbage! Sorry. Garbage in the moonlight! got a lovely smell lovely smells Sipping mm. sewage with my baby in our little personal cell please don't care Zoom, zoom, dum 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 the prison lum lum dum 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 That was an extract from Joe's Apartment, a 1996 film, and I'm not going to say anymore. Al, what were they singing about?
1: Oh, it could be anything. The amount of great songs in Joe's Apartment is significant. Funky Towel. Is one of the best ever songs About dropping a towel into the loo It's a musical, the whole film is a musical About a guy who Moves into a, a Apartment building, he comes to New York And moves into a gets a rent controlled apartment Entirely by being In the right place at the right time when the previous Owner drops dead literally right in front Of him and um, he pretends to be Her son I think But he moves into this apartment and finds that it is Filled with cockroaches because you know New York apartment. The cockroaches Can not only talk They can sing And will At length Without you being able to stop them The the actual story of it Is very kind of pie and chips It's it's just There is an evil developer Who wants to knock down this building So he can build a massive prison In the middle of New York And so They are trying to evict All the the people from the building And They've got Their work out for them Because they've got To take on this guy Joe And all his friends Who are all cockroaches who live in this apartment with him. Even as I say it, it sounds like I dreamed it, but I didn't.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that, because I remembered, while I was reading about this, seeing it about three in the morning. I think it must have been on Channel 4. I'm wondering if I had dreamed (laughs) I know now that I have genuinely seen this film, because I remembered Robert Vaughan being in it, and lo and behold, yes, he's the main villain. He's the man who wants to buy up the apartment block to make it into a prison. (laughs) I really, really thought I'd imagine this film. I could never put a name to it. I think I thought it was Termite Drods and Cockroaches, which is why I could never track down what it actually was. But yeah, it was absolutely real. And it was made in 1996 by MTV films
1: it was mtv's first ever movie like a lot of people think the mtv's first movie was beavers and butthead do america but this beat it by not very long i think it was a matter of just months it's the absolute cult films cult film you know it's from in terms of mid 90s beloved by stoner students in the late 90s kinds of movies, you know, you had this and you had Biodome, you know, Empire Records and, and Hackers, you know, that was sort of your little holy quartet of movies. <laughs> Every student night was one of these films would, would get put on. And, you know, those films are, there's a spectrum of quality in there, I would say. Biodome probably... Only really worth remembering for the fact that it's got a very, very early appearance by Tenacious D in it. But apart from that, I wouldn't really bother. I mean, it does have Kylie in it, so that's quite good. But Joe's apartment, I've always had a real soft spot for partly because, yes, I mean, you do have people like Robert Vaughn in there, you've got Don Ho, of Tiny Bubbles fame, is the like the main hench person who's trying to get all these people out. You know, the voices of the cockroaches are by people like Dave Chappelle and Billy West from Futurama. Yeah,
0: well that was the lore that you have of Billy West doing a voice role around that time.
1: And the main love interest is Megan Ward from Dark Skies.
0: Although, more pertinently, around that time, she was in Encino Man with Paul short although it was originally called california man when it came out over here but also jerry o'connell is joe who was verne stand by me yeah which wasn't quite a stoner film but it was a very studenty film around yeah
1: that. and i think having stand by me joe's apartment and sliders as being like the three <laughs> key touch points of your career must be a bit of an odd one it's a funny old cv to have those three you're never gonna get typecast with those three on your your CV really
0: but it seems that this bombed and it has a really poor critical reputation and like you say I think the reason people think beavers and pos America was the first MTV film's film was because that was actually indisputably really 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 good mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this was more of an acquired taste. Yeah. Maybe MTV tried to quietly forget about it as well, I don't know, which is how it ended up on TV at three in the morning.
1: I think so, but I mean, when you look at the cast, it's got people like Moby was in it, Tim Blake Nelson is one of the voices of the cockroaches. The songs are daft. The whole thing is basically just a big cartoon. Like, there's no logic to it at all, and people do the proper kind of cartoon physics stuff at various points. You know, you can get Home Alone still injured in this film and be okay because the worst thing that'll happen to you is you'll be like a clang noise as like a massive frying pan or whatever hits you in the face and you know if you were to for example walk off the edge of a building it would be several seconds before you fell because you'd have to notice first that you didn't have the ground underneath you because that's how physics works with that kind of vibe to it I think you need to be in a very particular state of mind, which for me was being 16 years old and easily amused. But for the rest of its natural audience, I think it was being slightly older and stoned out their faces. Well,
0: how does it stand up now? Because I would compare it to my closest sort of equivalent to it was the Coen Brothers Crime Wave, which is one of the forgotten mm-hmm. Coen Brothers films. But I remember finding that screamingly hilarious as a teenager and getting quite excited when I was at university when it turned up on TV one night. And then, when it came out on DVD I thought, I can't wait. I was literally looking at the letterbox every day until it turned up and I watched it and <laughs> と、<笑> don't really find this as funny anymore. You know, it didn't, it didn't offend me, it wasn't yeah. boring, it just didn't click with me in the same way. And I wonder if Joe's apartment has sort of had a similar effect.
1: Probably, yeah. I mean, I deliberately didn't go back and rewatch it because firstly, the almost the entire script of the movie is emblazoned on <laughs> my brain. But secondly, because I didn't want to sort of disillusion myself with it. I mean, I do still have it on DVD. I could have gone back and watched it if I wanted to, but I thought, I'd rather not, just because, I mean, it really was one of my Favorite movies for a long time. I wouldn't say it was a good movie. My absolute favorite film of all time is Empire Records, which is a shambles. Like, it's an absolute staggering Frankenstein disaster of a movie that was just dropped into a blender in the editing suite. But I love it. Joe's Apartment is similar in that I think objectively it's probably not a very good film, but. Boy did I love Joe's apartment.
0: Okay, well moving on now to your next choice, which is something that I don't imagine you'll have had the opportunity to rewatch. And bizarrely, despite the credentials of two of the stars and the fact that I was obsessed with the closely related show around that time, I'd never heard of this before. So see if you recognise either of those voices. This is more like the real conversation. It goes fast, it goes bang bang bang, and you don't understand exactly what's going on. Or you can get lost. But in order to keep going in a conversation with french people when you are struggling because it's good to try here are two handy tips the first one is a word which is truc, t-r-u-c which is a wonderful all-purpose word meaning thing and in english you use thing all the all the time so this is the handy word talk so when you don't know what something is you can just insert the word talk when you're pointing at it and then everyone will think you know what the french was and you can just keep going in a conversation as opposed to having to sit at the back like a strange person Pour uh, exemple uh... Antoine, uh, passe-moi uh, ce truc-là. Ah, le sucre, oui, bien sûr. Le sucre, oui. Ouais, Eddie. Merci, merci. You see that? Just slipped the word talk in there. Antoine didn't have a clue that I didn't know what the word was, and he thought I was entirely French and born here in 1487. Okay, that's very obviously Eddie Isard and Antoine de Cohn, but, Al, what are they doing together?
1: They're presenting a Channel 4 schools programme. Channel 4 had this show, Channel Hopping, in, gosh, it'll probably be in about 90, 97 or 96, around that kind of mid-90s time, where they decided that the best people to teach kids French were people that kids would actually be interested in watching at that stage in the curriculum. So you know, if you're 16 years old in the mid-90s, Eddie Azard and Antoine de are Pretty good choices to present a schools programme to teach people French. And it was very much the kind of thing you would expect from those two guys. Because it was not a dry recitation kind of show. And it was not a lot of kind of, ooh, a little kind of show. There was no kind of, write a letter to your French pen pal. It was Eddie Azard sitting there going, I'm going to teach you two most important words in another French language. And one of them is truc, which means thingy. And the other is bof. And Antoine de Conne getting people to feed him lines that allowed him to, you know, wiggle his eyebrows suggestively at the camera and stuff like that. It was deeply weird... It didn't run for very long, and there's very little of it on YouTube. It was something that I felt very lucky to get the opportunity to see when I did.
0: Well, I'll come back in a minute to how closely related it was to Eurotrash, but the really odd thing that struck me about it was, Eddie Izzard was probably still, when he did this, just in his I don't do TV phase, which has been forgotten about, because he was... It was quite exciting to see this happen at the time. He was becoming a name comedian who refused to Mm. do TV initially, because I remember it being... Quite exciting that he turned up on radio things, you read his name quite a lot, and it I think it was a 93 comic relief when they revived Saturday Live and he did five minutes on it and it was really kind of, oh that guy's going to be on, that's going to be really exciting he did, it's on radio on Radio One a couple of times when they had comedians being DJs and genuinely that was one of the few of those shows that everyone kept offers of. A lot mm-hmm. of the others like Lenny Henry did a Return to Station around then, there was a French and Saunders one and so on they've vanished, it's impossible to get hold of them, nobody kept copies of them but the Eddie Isar one, everyone seemed to have. There was also his early live video, live at the Ambassadors. Everyone had that. Even though he wasn't as well known as the people who were selling shed loads of VHS tapes because there wasn't any other chance to see him. And yet, if you were at school, you could see him all the time in this.
1: Yeah, I think this was just, it's, this must have been about 97 because this was just before he did, it was in 98 he did Channel Art, didn't he? Like, Channel 4 gave him his own night. And he did stuff like Speed Archaeology, which was just him going in with a bulldozer and like digging up a car park and they showed a sort of truncated version of definite article and so on he'd just come off the back of doing definite article in I think it was 95 and then glorious in 96 so he was huge off the back of those two those were massive like those were like holy tablets handed down in my school you know like every kid did the kind of same bad Eddie art impression that I just did a few minutes ago and he got this night on channel but I think it was just before then that he did this with Antoine de Conte and it's a very odd way of dipping your toe in the water if you're Eddie Izzard.
0: Well, is it related to the fact that I think was Glorious the first one that he did in France where he didn't just learn it in French, he subtly tweaked the script to be funny. But funnily enough, early today, I was listening to him on the Rule of Three podcast talk about this exact thing. He retooled his jokes just slightly enough for the French audiences to be able to get them in the same way that we get them. Mm-hmm. And so was it possibly on the back of that? Because I remember that being a bit of a news story that, you know, Eddie Isard has done a show in France in French. You know, literally in French. So I wonder if it came off the back of that.
1: He's always been a huge europhile and he's always been putting French jokes into stand-up and so on. And there was, I think it's inglorious is the, the whole bit where he's talking about the language labs and the, the plume de maton, de, de, de matante and all that kind of stuff. I, th- I think it was just after After Glorious, he started doing his stuff... No, because actually it's in the Lust for Glorious, the kind of pattern style full documentary that he did, which I think there's clips of that on the video of Glorious just before the actual show. Yes, there So is. Yeah. Of, he must have done it before Glorious. The first show he took the whole thing to France was Dressed to Kill. Like he, he did the entirety of Dressed to Kill in French in France, and then he did it all in German in Germany as well, which apparently was much harder because he, he was not anywhere near as au fait with the, the language but there's definitely bits he like he had gone and done stand up in France prior to that. He's always been a huge fan of uh, of uh, speaking French just in general and so I think this was one of his ways of indulging that as a fun thing because like, he obviously thinks speaking French it's fun and getting to do sit there and say extremely silly things it, on these weird cardboard sets that look like they've just sat down in an episode of Paddington Bear Well
0: yeah that's, I mean it's a very close relative of Euro Trash. And I'd be interested to find out how much you knew about Euro Trash because for me, I was I think when that started, I had just started at university. And it was in those days it was still possible for shows to go under the radar. You know, there wasn't that hype machine behind things in those days, and Euro Trash was on very late on Channel 4. And now it became very big much later on. I remember people going round to people's houses to watch EuroTrash live. You know, fifteen or twenty people at time <laughs> and i wonder did you even know it
1: existed it sounds I'd, like you were at yeah school. i was at, i wasn't like i wasn't allowed to watch your trash because it was too rude <laughs> but I mean, this was a time when it was very much the loaded era so there was a lot of magazines like loaded and sky magazine and stuff like that that were very much are you a boy age about 16 this is for you it's mostly boobs and Eurotrash kind of I know that Eurotrash was a, a much sillier and a much more frivolous and dafter and more playful thing than these quite sort of grim magazines but because there was just a lot of extremely casual nudity it was never laid on in my house but I was certainly well aware of its existence and of Antoine de Cône
0: because of course he also presented Repeat. that yeah it's really weird to think that was so big at one point and all you see of it now is say there'll be a DVD of like you know the Stone Roses or My Bloody valentine or whatever we'll have clips of them on the show on it and that's it
1: yeah so it just disappeared from the kind of general popular consciousness
0: okay well steering completely away from your trash towards something much more wholesome here here's a piece of music that might mean a lot to anyone that was a certain age at a certain point in the 80s
1: Puddle Lane. So, Al, where and what was Puddle Lane? Puddle Lane was... It was a kid's show about a magician who was friends with a little dragon who could do magic. They would just kind of sit around, talk about basic spelling, and then introduce a story which was not really animated. But, you know, technically there was a picture and it would move... The camera would move pan across the picture. So it's technically a sort of minor animation. It was a tie-in show with a... Huge range of Reading books basically Like like teach kids to read Kinds of books That were at different grades So you know Like you got like The green books or whatever Were for the youngest kids And then like Red books and and so on And as you went up Obviously there were fewer And fewer of them At each stage Because kids are going to Drop off this They were supposed to, to Take kids through Learning various Different concepts of You know Letter pairs or whatever You know And they were very Basic stories for the first ones And then they would Get more complex as they went. But the two things about it that really struck me, I think more going back now than at the time. One, is that this magician who is in Pod Lane is Neil Innis. Yes. Which is just I mean now looking I mean, back then I had no idea Neil Innis was. I never heard the ruttles or nothing. I never heard Python. You know, I was five. Now I'm just like, wow, okay, that's really good. That's a good get. And he did all the music. There was loads of songs in it and stuff like that as well. So he, he was doing original music for pretty much every episode. And so that was one of the things. The other was that the books, this was the first time I'd ever encountered, they were like ladybird books, effectively. They were about that sort of size. They had continuing plot threads. They had continuing characters. They had a green dragon creature called the Griffel, which first turns up. About eight or nine books in, but has been teased in earlier books. As they go on, there's like, there's a red one called The Gruffle gets introduced, but that is very much a reaction to The Griffle. As somebody who is now, like their major thing that they do is comic book related online, I'd say this was my first experience of that kind of extended universe serialized storytelling, and it absolutely hooked me in. Like, I was desperate to know what was going to happen in the next Puddle Lane books. And I think that's a really good way of getting kids to learn how to read, is to make them want to know what happens next. Yeah, it
0: ran between 1985 and 1989, and it was made by Yorkshire TV. I was a bit too old to be watching it by that. I was aware that it existed. But the main reason I remember Puddle Lane was that this was around the same time that the BBC were repeating Monty Python's Flying Circus, and then repeated The Ruttles because everyone in school was quite obsessed with monty python and then the ruttles just took everyone by surprise because we didn't know what it was or where it had come from i remember people saying because the of dog Doodle band had sort of been forgotten a bit by that point and someone said who's this neil Innes?" and i said oh he's the magician in puddle lane <laughs> and it's like kind of you could see like light bulbs going on in people's heads <laughs> I have since found out that the main reason he did Puddle Lane was he had a lot of legal trouble over the publishing rights of the Ruttle, and apparently he was just offered almost by chance around that time Puddle Lane, and according to an interview he later gave, he said, I was fed up with the music business, they can't take a joke, so I did Puddle Lane, (laughs) which is a great way of hitting back at them. Fair
1: enough, like if if people who you're hanging out with are not going to be actually letting you do anything fun, then go and do something else with somebody else. Guev you go and do four years of Puddle Lane instead. Because what you what you got from that was a totally different generation of people who remembered Neil Innes. I was too young to remember his name, but my goodness, I remembered his face.
0: Yeah, and he did a few things. He did the theme to the Raggy Dolls as well, didn't he? So, Oh, yeah. he applied his talents in that area. But, I mean, there was quite a thing around then of people who'd, you know, either got fed up of the adult entertainment world. I shouldn't say adult entertainment. That sounds a bit <laughs> odd <laughs> Thank <laughs> you of the grown-up entertainment world or they'd had problems with their career and so on, who did children's TV and thrived there for a bit. I mean, the main one is David Copperfield from Three of a Kind Mm -hmm. who, obviously, Lenny Henry and Tracy Ullman had gone on to much bigger things and he hadn't. And for a while, he was the biggest thing in children's TV. Apparently, his agent told him to give it up and start pursuing serious work again. (laughs) And he now thinks that was a mistake. But for a couple of years, he was absolutely massive in there, Probably while his former audience are going, whatever happened to him? He's doing very <laughs> nicely on lift-off with coppers and cow. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same with Neil Innes, really. People were probably saying, what happens to that bloke from the Innes Book of Records?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's okay,
0: doing he's, children's TV for years. Yeah,
1: he's standing, wiggling his fingers around in puddles of water and making stories appear.
0: And if I remember rightly, doing the main riff from the intro and the outro by the Bonzos... He did his tricks
1: uh, It was one of those things as well If you look at the Again you look at the pedigree Of the people involved The dragon The puppet dragon that they had Was done by Was made by And voiced by Richard Robinson He did tons of Spitting image He did the Riddlers He did Dizzy Heights He was for a while Like he was just doing Huge amounts of puppet stuff On British telly You can kind of see why If you go back and look at Puddle Lane stuff on YouTube Or whatever And you can go Actually that's really well done I <laughs> just looked up Richard Robinson's Wikipedia entry apparently he's now the director of the brighton science festival which okay. i would not have predicted that as a career path
0: well it went on for four years and apparently there were 54 of those books you were talking about mm. so it's a huge thing to a certain not even a certain generation of young children just kids who grew up in a specific stretch of time it will mean everything to and probably anyone just either side of it have a clue what it was
1: absolutely because it was so I mean, it was made for a specific purpose it was aimed at children who were learning to read and so if you weren't learning to read between you know 1986 and 1989 then there was no point in you watching or reading those books so if you were in that kind of little particular demographic that slice then puddling could have been a very big thing for you but otherwise there's no reason why you would ever go near it
0: okay well i've really no way of getting from there into your life Last choice, which I've got to admit, I rolled my eyes in a positive way when I saw this on your list, and I knew it had to be the last choice. So let's hear, if that's the right word, a brief clip from it. Okay, that was everyone's favourite computer game, Advanced Law Power Simulator. I'll recount the story behind this, please. So,
1: Advanced Lawnmower Simulator is a very well-reviewed video game. Every, (laughs) Every single review... That was ever published of this game gave it very high marks at your sinclair magazine in fact gave it its coveted mega game status and gave it 9 out of 10 the, the your sinclair clapometer I've got the actual review in front of me here it says a classic simulation game from an exciting new name and Specky software guaranteed number one so this apparently came out from garden soft and uh, cost 1495 in a world where even like the full price games were mostly just 999 you know, and it was a, a simulator of the cut and thrust world of mowing lawns. And of course, everything about it was nonsense. It was an April Fool joke, which was played by um, Your Synchro magazine on its readers. Interestingly enough, it got known as Advanced Lawnmower Simulator in the years after, but the actual review that they published was Advanced Lawnmower Simulation rather than Simulator. But the, when they actually put the game out on the The cover tape on the magazine the following year and it was Simulator by that point. But it was programmed by one of the reviewers, Duncan McDonald who also wrote the review and it was literally just a stupid joke and they had literally two years Of people writing in or, you know, claimed that they had people writing in. Certainly they were publishing letters. I don't know if people were actually writing them to the magazine or whether they were being written by Duncan MacDonald. Of people asking about Advanced Lawnmower Simulator and why couldn't they find it in their shops and all this kind of thing. And eventually it took... I think it was 1988 they put the, the review and it took until 1990 before they ever actually in print said yes advanced lawnmower simulator it was an April Fool joke that we did. <laughs> remember it's just, literally all you can do is you press or hold the M key and every time every time <laughs> you press or hold down the M key it will cut one square of grass and it will go up the screen down the screen left and right and after about three or four screens of this the uh, lawnmower breaks because it's hit a rock.
0: And it blows up.
1: (laughs) Bearing in mind that the game at the start you get given a choice of six lawnmowers, right? (laughs) Only one of them works. So you can only choose one. And then you have to mow the lawn. And after the lawn has been mowed you get rewarded if it's been done well enough and all of the lawns are identical. So... And then there's no way to avoid hitting a rock and blowing up. And after that, the game just starts again. It's
0: like the kind of game Brian Butterfield, (laughs) making all seriousness...
1: and so funny like as just as an idea just your sinclair was probably i think it's probably my favorite magazine ever amiga power was like the kind of the the refined it was the galvatron to your sinclair's megatron your sinclair was just an absolute hotbed of genius so many of the things that have come out of that magazine that are now just taken as standards across magazine publishing like in quotes funny photo captions, which are just the bane of my life whenever I'm trying to read a magazine now. SFX has is, is got a lot of this going on, um, where you'll have a, a, a caption of some two people just looking dull and slack-jawed towards the camera and then like the caption will say something like Greg remembered that he'd left the gas on, or something like that. And he's like, oh no, rubbish, not funny. That was a guy called James Leach, I think his name was, who was at your Sinclair he started doing like previous to that captions had just been here is a picture of computer games character Dizzy as he walks from one side of the screen to the other it was very functional and then after that it was just nonsense and it got picked up by magazines all over the place it got taken to Amiga Power FHM picked it up and massively popularised it and then it kind of came out of the hands of people who were good enough to do it and now it's all over the place and most of them are rubbish But as a magazine, it was the first time that I'd ever felt that we were being invited to get to know the people who made the magazine. They had personalities. They had literally they had caricatures of the writers for the magazine in their joystick jugglers column where they would just ask them stuff like, so what is your favorite mug? or whatever you know, that kind of, and that kind of thing went on to become again much more widespread particularly in future publishing where a lot of the staff kind of dispersed out onto other mags Amiga Power was one, Arcade was another and it just sort of percolated from there The other
0: thing, you know, the other Spectrum let's mm. be honest about it the magazines were never really about the ZX80 or ZX81 <laughs> or the QL for that matter or the C5 or whatever but the other Spectrum magazines were kind of, they weren't on the side of the people actually playing the games. Sinclair user was very definitely on the side of the manufacturers. I mean, the main thing I remember about it was God-loving but endless interviews of Andrew Hewson from Hewson Consultants. <laughs> and think really wants to read that. You know, I'm sure he's a lovely, like, witty man, but when you're a kid once you read about games, you just think, what? Why is this in here? Crash was kind of... I'm going to be controversial here and say Crash was funny, it was irreverent, but it was driven by the advertisers.
1: Yeah, Crash was the first one I got into. It was the first computer magazine I ever got issues of. Crash was computer magazines for white dwarf readers, and your Sinclair was computer magazines for pastels listeners.
0: Yes, and it was totally on your side. If a game was boring, they would say so.
1: Mm, Yeah, and they made full use of the full spectrum of the, 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 no pun intended, the full spectrum of the the ratings possible. I remember the duck. Two, One of the worst games ever made, they gave 9%.
0: <laughs> what was so bad about it?
1: The review was just. It was so. The vitriol in the review was just like. You could sense that they really just wanted to grab that game and shake it until every minute that they'd wasted it on it just fell back out again.
0: It was Count Docula 1 any good then?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I obviously sold enough to warrant the sequel. Who knows?
0: <laughs> Why was it so bad?
1: Apparently it was just, it was unbelievably like almost Im- unplayably difficult. There was things <laughs> like if you moved into a screen because the enemies were generated in a sort of roguelike fashion, you could literally walk onto a screen and instantly die because your head had interfaced with a bat or something. How do
0: you not die? What, that's, it, no wonder people hated it.
1: And, and then if you did die on a screen, you would respawn in the exact place. Where you had died at the exact moment, so you would just die and die and die and die and die until all your lives had gone.
0: Good lord! And all Cosgrove Hall needed to do was to combine spellbound and Note of Yesod and call it an alias the Jester game, and it would have worked. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think on that note, I think <laughs> I think we should just go and play a Panslawpamersimul. Like. <laughs> Al, it's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. One One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy in BBC Radio 1 from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.org.